In today's episode, we open our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Today we witness a confrontation between prophet, the prophet Nathan and King David. This confrontation was orchestrated by God himself, and it serves as a turning point in David's life. He's forced to reckon with his transgressions, that is, the adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah, and Nathan delivers this message eloquently through a parable about a rich man's greed and a poor man's loss. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Tuesday, June 27th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is made possible in part by a generous gift from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. To learn more about LHF and how you can partner with them in their vital mission work, visit their website at lhfmissions.org. That's lhfmissions.org. Well, this morning, please join me in welcoming my guest to help us explore chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. It's the Reverend Ryan Fairman. He's the pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Wausau, Wisconsin. Pastor Fairman, good morning, brother, and welcome back to the show. Morning, Pastor Booth. Thank you for having me on. Always excited to have you on. It's been a little while, and it's nice to have you right here at at one of the uh, the more memorable events of David's life and of 2 Samuel, uh, it's the Atahish chapter, right? You are the man, David, is mm-hmm. being rebuked by Nathan. I'm sure we'll get into all of that, but uh, glad to have you here for this exciting chapter. Yeah, it is great to be here. So before we get started, would you start us off with some prayer, please? Sure. Let us pray. Heavenly Father... Send us your Holy Spirit as we study the scriptures that our minds and hearts would be open to you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, here we are. And, you know, it's really in the middle of a narrative. This part is just a continuation of chapter 11, which we covered yesterday. Uh, I'm going to Mm -hmm. I'm going to read just the last two verses here. Verse 26 and 27, this is of chapter 11. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased Yahweh. Well, for those who might have missed it, uh, what was the thing that David had done, brother. Why don't you take us back and uh, lay down the foundation for what we're going to talk about today, please? There's a lot that David had done. It's all tied up into one thing. Uh, The beginning of chapter 11 talks about in the spring when kings go out to battle, and King David does not go out to battle. Uh, That's what one of his roles was. He sends someone else, and he sees uh, he stays home, gets in trouble, sees Bathsheba, he desires her. Uh, she is the wife of another husband, a Hittite, Uriah. And so he takes her to himself, uh, and uh, she becomes pregnant. In the, in the meantime, he tries to cover up this adultery by having Uriah come back uh, and trying to get Uriah to sleep with his wife through various means. But Uriah is a, is a faithful soldier and will not do it uh, while he, the rest of the men are out in the field. 
So David comes with another plan to put Uriah at the front line of the battle where he would no doubt die, and he does. Uh, And so this is a whole sordid affair that is in some ways sadly normal for kings of our world and in our history, but not for a king of Israel. And this is what displeases the Lord. Yeah, they're supposed to be set apart, right? You know, he essentially is God's representative on earth, the anointed. And so to do this, uh, you know, it's a very King Saul-ish kind of thing. It's not supposed to be a King David kind of thing. And yet we see here, of course, sin lies within the heart of David, too. Well, let's Mm -hmm. read, um, let's say the first six verses, just to kind of get a start on our text for this morning. Here we go. And Yahweh sent Nathan to David. He came to him, and he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. Well, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As Yahweh lives, the man who has done this deserves to die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. All right, that's the end of verse 6. So obviously we, the informed reader, know that Yahweh is sending this prophet to David to chastise him about his affair with Bathsheba and the grievous sin that he committed against Uriah. He's doing it through this parable, but uh, it doesn't sound like David understands this to be a parable. He's, it makes it seem that he thinks that this is something that's going on, and they need the king's they need the king's verdict on the matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh, well, one of the king's roles in Israel was to judge cases, especially hard cases. And you know, David knew Nathan. Nathan's a prophet. Nathan is the one that that helped David a few chapters back, kind of design and and, and get ideas on how to set up the tabernacle, how to set up how to set up a temple at some point, which David's not going to do, but the plans are laid there. And so when Nathan comes in, I, I think it's important to note right in, in verse one that the Lord sent Nathan. Uh the you mentioned earlier, you know, how the how the kings of Israel, and here David as the anointed representative of God, they are, but they're not like Pharaoh. They're they're not like God on earth. They are they are not like whatever goes through the mouth of the leader is exactly what God says. The kings of Israel are underneath God. And so they have a responsibility to the word of the Lord. They have a responsibility to the Lord. And so we can see that different setup than all the kingdoms that are around coming through that the Lord is sending Nathan. And I'm, and boy, if I was Nathan. I would want the Lord to send me <laughs> because I wouldn't want to go on my own, even right. though uh, David is is responsible to God. Uh, again, a different kind of governing setup, a governing setup that honestly we have taken out of, you know, the, the Christian history of Europe into our own country, in fact, 
that that our our judges and our and our and our magistrates and our presidents or are not a law unto themselves but they are under god one nation under god or they have a prayer at the supreme court and so on but anyway um with this i, I would want god sending because he, david could still strike him down i uh, you know you have saul's history there you don't want to go see saul in a bad mood so uh nathan is sent by the lord and he does come to him and david does see this as a case i think um, now, he might not realize it's a parable, but if we look at Psalm 31, or excuse me, Psalm 32, we know that this intervening time between chapter 11 and 12, which is probably, I don't know, about a year, David inside is feeling the pressure. Uh, and some people think Psalm 32 expresses a little bit of that. Let me read you just a portion of that. Sure. Uh, the beginning says, but. Yeah, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. This is David's reflection afterwards. But when you get down to verse 3, it says, When I kept silent, and he's been silent for a year, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. But I acknowledge my sin to you. We'll see that. And I did not cover my iniquity. So, you know, David's being eaten up inside. And uh, whether he acknowledges it to anybody, Nathan comes with this parable, and it's very, very much human nature sometimes for us to condemn strongest what we are dealing with ourselves. And so David's reaction at the end here is like his anger is just is greatly kindled, it says. Uh, And so, yeah, it's whether I wonder if David feels it already inside because we'll see what's coming up next or not but but whatever it is he has been dealing with this sin internally it's been it's been it's been troubling him inside um nathan sure knows how to do a parable though i'll tell you (laughs) well so Uh, you know the lord sends him knowing of course that he's already been convicting david within his heart right yep yeah and 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 it's it's the perfect parable for david uh not only because of the circumstance that's described you could describe this story in many ways but David started off He probably, among the various shepherds, taking care of their various things. One, you know, I, I just asked one of my farmers, they have cows and stuff like that. And, you know, there are certain of those animals, they often name them, sometimes they number them, but there are certain ones by personality that they just get to know and to care for in a different way. And so David certainly had this experience of, you know, there's that one sheep, you know, uh, it's always that quirky behavior, but this experience of, of really, you know, almost as a pet here, you know, this one ewe lamb brought up almost as a daughter to him. He, he gets that. He gets the rich guy that has the big herds and takes up the field and, you know, push, shoves off the guys with the little herds. They, they, all, they all get that kind of stuff. And then the guy comes and takes the other guy's lamb and how precious that is. He understands all of this almost instinctively because of his upbringing. Well, and David certainly understands the connections here because of his shepherding, right, history, as you're saying. But of course, yep. it mirrors David's own actions, and that's the whole point. David had yep. a whole harem of wives and concubines. You know, there's that connection, right? He has his his own uh, wives with which to um, re- relieve those feelings, and yet he goes and he takes it from poor Uriah, and that's that's the idea. Mm-hmm. Verse 5, it says, his anger was greatly kindled against the man, so he's rendering judgment 
as Yahweh lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And then verse 7, Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of Yahweh to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Let's pause right there at the end of verse 10. So that's the turning point, right? In Hebrew, mm-hmm. right? You are the man. And, you know, obviously this could be dramatized, and it always is when I read it in my head. You know, David's lambasting this horrible guy. Clearly, as you've already pointed out, understands what it what it really means to have killed someone's uh, pet you, right? And he's angry about it, but he still doesn't recognize that 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 Nathan's talking about him until, of course, he just flat out tells him, well, all right, you've rendered your judgment. Well, the judgment should be against you. And if we were filming this, this is when we do a, a rack focus really close onto David's face. And he's, <laughs> he's, he's all distraught. But but that's this is where it hits him. And then he, of course, Yahweh through him reveals to him all the great things that God had done for him. And, and if he wanted something else, he could have had it. But yet he disobeys God. What a what, what an amazing turn that must have been. And, and you know what? Even though Yahweh was with him, as you said before, there has to be a little trepidation on the part of Nathan. This is this is the king. Yeah, yeah. It, you you don't know, and and that goes for our our brothers overseas, pastors, lay people. You know, God says, "I'll give you the words to say. I will be with you." But you don't know when He's going to call you to martyrdom. Uh, and so, you know, the courage that Nathan shows is a God-given courage. But but there is always danger. Uh, David, David, uh, when he renders judgment here, renders it correctly. Nathan, Nathan agrees with the, with the judgment. God agrees with the judgment. Um, and, and it's interesting, David, in verse six, we kind of skip that for a second, but that's okay. So that, he says, "My judgment is rendered this because you had no pity." You know, David emotionally feels this, and, and so when it's turned on him, uh, you know, it, it's going to shake him to the core, as you'll see his reaction. But they, uh, Nathan says, "Yeah, he establishes that David is this king in the parable that he tells, and in fact, that God, all these actions, I anointed you." I delivered you, I gave you, and if all these things that I did for you uh, were not enough, I would add more to it. But what what is the, from God's lips now, through the prophet uh, Nathan, what is the main issue here? Verse 9, you have despised the word of the Lord and done what is evil in uh, his sight. So you, this is this is a big deal. So David broke you know, the uh, Sixth Commandment, not commit adultery. Uh, and and he did it publicly. He thinks it's in secret, but all the nations around know this. Right. And he did it publicly. And so this creates a great stink in everyone. And I was about, yeah, I see, I see how Israel is. I see how God's people are. 
uh, if they're leaders like that. And so despising the word, and in fact, there's another commandment that deals with that, and that's the uh, the third commandment. We should fear and love God so that we do not despise preaching in his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. That's remember the Sabbath day. So by breaking thick up the line, you break the third, and honestly, you go up the line. You break the first commandment, say. no other gods. Yep. We could pick off I mean, all the commandments. That, down. Yeah, we could pick off all the commandments that David broke, right? You know, the first, of right, course, the because murder. he's lusting. Yep. Murder is fifth. Yeah. Steal, he's taken something from someone else, right? Of course, yeah. he's the I king, mean, so he's misusing the name of the Lord. It, it's like that game where they, they build all these blocks up, and you pull one block by one block out until someone has to pull it and it tumbles down. And what David, you know, with the commandments, pulls this one block out, and they all come tumbling down. And this is the head of Israel, and this is God's anointed one. This is yeah. a huge problem. Uh, and well, so despising the word is really where, where the tension point comes, and it, and it does for us, too. You know, we, a little sin here or there or nobody notices but we're despising the word of the Lord, and he knows this. And it, it's a problem. Yeah, one of the phrases that David himself uses right before second half of verse 5, he says, As Yahweh lives, the man who does this deserves to die. In the Hebrew, it's a lot more colorful. It says uh, that the, the man who does uh, who's done this is uh, ben mavet, which literally means mm-hmm. he is a son of death. Um, and this this... You know, is really in contrast to where what God has anointed David to be. Right? He is he, and his of course through his son, and then of course through the son that is fulfilled in Jesus. He, you know, his kingdom is going to last forever, and yet David is declaring this guy is the son of death, and then Nathan says, "You basically are the son of death," and and I think that this is sort of the dramatic turn because. David realizes that he's supposed to be protecting his people, and yet he turns against them in this way. And as you've already pointed out, he thinks all of this is secret, but nothing is secret, right? What he's done in secret is now being brought out in broad daylight. Uh, Think of 1 Corinthians, right? God will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and expose the motives of the heart, and that's what he's doing through Nathan. I think it also reminds Mm -hmm. us, though, and I'm sure you would agree, Pastor, that this is why leadership— whether it's spiritual leadership, political leadership, or a combination of both, as in with David, um, it needs this oversight. As you said earlier, he's not supposed to be a pharaoh. He's supposed to be a prince of the uh, of the Jews. He's supposed to be serving under God's will. And so that's why this accountability is so important, even today. Now, in, in verse 7, uh, you noted that, that you are the man. A thousand years later, approximately 28 generations down the road— we're going to hear those words again. Uh, we're going to hear them from the word uh, from the mouth of Pilate as they bring Christ up. Behold, the man, uh, and and the iniquity of us all is laid on him. He's innocent, unlike David, and yet this is going to play out again in a way. It's really interesting how this chapter interplays into Jesus's life, uh, mm-hmm. and, and and because that's you know he's he is David's descendant. He is the one through the promise. Uh, all these promises of a coming Messiah, a promise of a king on the throne forever, uh, all these are going to come to play out. And, and at this point, you know, th- these, this, this promise is, in a sense, from a human side, uh, at peril uh, because of the sin of David. Uh, but there's a way out. 
there is a way out, and and the way out that we will see in the in the chapter is going to find its fulfillment in the one that's you are the man, behold the man in Christ, mm-hmm. a descendant of David a thousand years later. Yahweh has explained through Nathan all the things that he had did for him. He had taken, uh, rescued him from Saul. He had given him Saul's mm-hmm. throne and Saul's wives. Well, now in verse 11, we're going to read through verse 14. Um, now there's a punishment coming for David. You know, yep. Nathan's not just saying this is something for which you should feel bad and then ask for forgiveness. There's there's judgment coming in here. Let's listen to it. Uh, Thus says Yahweh. Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. And Nathan said to David, Yahweh also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned Yahweh, the child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. Well, it certainly ends it on a very somber tone, right? You're forgiven, but there are consequences for Mm -hmm. your sins. Um, And I think that's something that we overlook today. I do definitely want to understand the context of this, but just sort of kind of jumping to to the application so often people just say, well, you know, I, I'm forgiven my sins and therefore I, there's no consequences for that because I'm, I'm saved. I, I won't die forever. God has forgiven me. But in this mortal life, there are often consequences for our sins. And David finds that out, too. And yet we might question, why must the son die for the sins of the father? Take us through this, brother. Sure. Uh, first of all, these things about your wives, uh, lying with your wives in the sight of the sun. Is a, David's sin that he thought was secret, uh, as as God's representative, as this prince prince of Israel, um, there has to be a public judgment. This is part of it, uh, and as well as, as the death of the son. Uh, I would note uh, in verse 11 that we start, I will raise up evil against you in your house, Uh and, and there's this idea that the sword doesn't depart There's from David's house uh, is something that will play out in, in Christ as well. But you asked especially about this, this child dying. I once had a confirmation student. He thought he was being smart or he read something online. Uh, and we were talking about abortion. And we talked about, you know, that, that God, God loves children and, you know, he doesn't want children to be killed and stuff like that. And he raised his hand and said, but yeah, but God kills children. And, I, and everybody in class, including myself, said, well, what? what? What do you mean? And he pointed to this very section of Scripture. Uh, there's a lot going on here. Uh, there is a consequence for sin. Uh, in Hebrews, uh, what is it, chapter 9, uh, verse 22, it mentions that basically for redemption, for the forgiveness of sins, blood must be shed. And so David is forgiven. But there is a consequence. Blood must be shed, and and the picture is being drawn here. Um, and and there is there is for this particular child a hint of a happy ending that we'll get to at near the end of the chapter. But right here we have to deal with the fact that the sins are placed upon the son. And if and if you hear me say that the sins are placed upon the son, and you say that's unfair, I get it. Uh, this is not typically how things go in the Bible. 
But if you hear me say the sins have been placed upon the Son, the Son has to die, you will recognize that language coming out of the New Testament. The sins have been placed upon the Son. It's not fair. Uh, and, and behold, we are the man in a way in, in what we have done. And yet Jesus takes that upon as the man who bears the sins of the world. Uh, and so this child is a picture of what uh, both the consequence of sin and the price of redemption that will be fulfilled in Christ. And this child is a son of David. And so Christ, too, is a son of David. So there, there, there's a lot going on here with, you know, and I, I, we got to make that jump. We're, we're living now on this side uh, of, of the scriptures. Uh, and so we can, we can see more clearly maybe than even what they could see at that time. But when David, uh, David says that I've sinned against the Lord, it's interesting. Uh, in the medieval uh, books that when they would read this out loud, they actually put a face here, uh, a pause, and then they would read Psalm 51. And you might know Psalm 51, um, have mercy on me, O God, mm-hmm. according to your steadfast love. And then we get into what we do in the liturgy. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Uh, just like Psalm 32, which we read earlier, I didn't read past that, but it says, uh, I will con- confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Our whole liturgical structure is in a small way tied up in this chapter uh, as we look through the Psalms of David reflecting on the incidents here. And for us, the confession and absolution is exactly what's going on. We confess our sin, and then look how quick Nathan is to absolve. That's God's doing. God desires to absolve our sin and restore us. He does not desire. Let's just do in it a little while. You know, once the confession comes, the repentance and the turning to the Lord comes, he immediately forgives. David has done nothing at this point. There are consequences, as you said. I cut somebody's arm off, and they forgive me. The arm is still cut off. I am forgiven, but there's going to be consequences. Someone comes to me and confesses murder. They can be forgiven, but there are consequences, and they'll need to turn themselves in. And so in David's case here, too, we have this almost this core moment, uh, uh, one, of these, one of these core moments in Scripture, where confession and absolution occur. And in this case, there are some, there are some serious consequences for David. But the consequence of the, the sin line upon the sun is pointing us forward to the ultimate confession absolution that comes in the death and resurrection of Christ for us. It's a, it's a it's a fantastic chapter that we're reading right now. Absolutely, this whole concept I think does throw people off though. With you know, why does the son born to Bathsheba die? Since it was David who committed the sin, and in the most, you know, we obviously can say to your to your catechumen who's like, well, God kills children. First of all, that's like the worst take on it. But right. <laughs> but the other, it's obviously an inflammatory take. But on the other hand. God has the right to dispense judgment, and really yes. that tells us nothing more than children are also born in sin and deserve the judgment. With that said, I would also like to point out, not as a means of explanation, but just as, I guess, extra information, our sins hurt others all the time, including mm-hmm. the so-called innocent. 
So David's, you know, if, if you were to go out and to kill someone, that that sin that you commit has an effect on the other. Um, if, if you were a, uh, a drunk driver and you ran your car into a church van full of orphans, <laughs> that's going to hurt other people. And so this David's high handed his his sinful behavior. It's going to be affecting all kinds of people, but it would take it affecting him personally, I think, for him to really fully understand the pain of what we see in terms of his son taking the punishment that he deserves. And as you've already connected, you know, it's not our son, it's God's son, but takes the punishment we deserve. And sometimes we're so far removed from that, I don't know that we fully understand what Jesus endured to save us from our sins. David Mm. would have known. I'll tell you what, let's take a pause right there just for a few minutes as we take a break. But folks, don't go anywhere. We'll come back in just a few minutes. See you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Ryan Fairman. He's the pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Wausau, Wisconsin. Now, you know you can always catch Thy Strong Word on the radio in St. Louis on AM850, but as I've said before, if that signal doesn't quite reach you because you're not in St. Louis or you're not even in Missouri or you're not even in the United States, you can always subscribe to the program on your favorite podcasting app, You can download KFUO Radio's mobile app on iOS and Android. You can also listen live or on demand at KFUO.org. So many different ways to connect no matter where you are on the planet. Worldwide KFUO is what they call it. And if you want to share your thoughts or questions with me, I'm always happy to hear from you. You can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook so we can stay in touch. All right, Pastor Fairman. So, before the break, we're, you know, we're just sort of digging in a little bit to this, you know, why should the, the son die for the sins of the father? And it connects us to Jesus, and it reminds us of the judgment of God. It even reminds us a little bit of original sin and just that reality. I, I, I read one place in a, in a commentary, and it's not particularly a Lutheran commentary, but I thought it was an interesting statement. I wanted your opinion on it. It says, in regards to this concept of why should the child die for David's sin, It says, as for the child, it was no punishment for him to go to paradise and await final redemption with all saints. Now, I understand the context behind that. Um, I understand sort of what they're trying to get at. I think it could be a little dangerous, but I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that statement, that basically it isn't a punishment for him because he's in paradise. 
well, then we should kill everyone, shouldn't we? Well, that's the uh, danger, right? All, yeah, you know, <laughs> that's the uh, danger. That, that's that's. I understand where the statement is going, um, and, and there's a jump that it makes and where it wants to get to, and there, there's some value in it, but death is always a punishment. Death is not natural. Sometimes we say, well, they died of natural causes. No, <laughs> you die because sin's in the world. That's that's just the way it is. Um, and so, and, and there's a relief sometimes that death brings, uh, you know, many times you deal with with a family member, or if I if I have a, a church member that's been suffering greatly for a long time, death brings that kind of end to that suffering, especially if they're in Christ and they're in paradise with Him. And we talk about that language, and and that's that's fine as far as it goes, um, but we have to be very careful with that to understand that that death itself is not a good thing. It's not the way God set up the world, and it and it's. I, you know, I've seen stuff go further than that uh, with this particular passage. For example, right. this child is born out of wedlock, and in Deuteronomy, uh, there's a verse that says that basically, if you're if you are born, especially in a sinful, out of wedlock situations, not all people, but but particularly despising the word of the Lord, then you and for ten generations are cut off from being in the Lord's house. Ten generations simply means basically forever. Uh, and so there's, there's some, you know, there's some real negative stuff that comes in for this child's life. And deal with being people pointing at him saying, he's the one that was, you know, conceived this way. Um, I, I, I would rather say that, and and I'm, I'm skipping ahead on this, but I, I do think that the child is with the Lord, and I think the text bears that. But just to say, well, it's better for them, diminishes the grief that parents feel when a child dies. This is a bad thing. This this is in in David's case here. This is a judgment, and and, and he feels it. He he will he he feels it because he while the child yet lives, he's going to be. Uh, be really praying for that child's life. So I so I, I don't want to soft pedal the consequences of sin through that statement, though I understand what they're trying to say. Yeah, and I and I do too. And you hit it, you know, you hit the nail right on the head, right? Because that could, that argument, I guess it's a nice rationalization. It gets God off the hook, so to speak, which we don't need to do. God is just right. even uh, for consequences that we don't like. But at the same time, I think that could be used for um, all cover all manner of sins. But you said jumping ahead in the text. Why don't we just do that? Let's uh, let's okay. get into it. We're going to start with verse 15 again and uh, head into verse 23. Then Nathan went to his house, and Yahweh afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor would he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth. He washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of Yahweh 
and worshipped. Then he went into his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, yet when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept, for I said, Who knows whether Yahweh will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. All right, that's at the end of verse 23. So, so yes, we, we also see here, without a shadow of a doubt, Yahweh afflicted the child that Uriah's mm-hmm. wife bore to David, and he became sick. Uh, a quick note before you uh, help us understand this text. You notice how Bathsheba is always called, or not always, but frequently called the wife of Uriah or Uriah's wife, kind of like the widow of Nabal, which is Abigail. Uh, when David takes wives unto himself that don't technically belong to him, um, they continue to be identified as belonging to someone else. Not in a property sort of way, folks, you know, don't don't get too worked up, just in the sense that, you know, this wasn't David's wife by a traditional God-pleasing means. This is certainly the sin. So it, it, he's always sort of reminded, uh, obviously we're being told this, but even when when Nathan uh, accuses him, he, he calls him, uh, calls her, you know, the wife of Uriah. So David, his sin is constantly before him, as he often expressed in the Psalms. Yeah. You know, and, and Uriah's wife will be named. We just haven't gotten there yet. Uh, and, and, and it's a good turn. Uh, you know, we have the Lord afflicting the child. Uh, he will die. David is God. And David knows that he is merciful. He responds to prayer, and so, he, but it is thy will be done. And so David fasts and prays for this child, knowing God's character. There's another episode. I said this is this all this stuff is tied up in Christ's life as well, and so there's this episode where Christ is going to his death, but before that he's in the garden, and so he. Excuse me. He's in the garden and he uh, is praying, you know, is there another way? Can this cup be taken from me? Uh, and the answer is no. Thy will be done. And so here too with David, David prays. And in this case, the answer is no. Thy will be done. Uh, and that's why David is so, he's still so distraught. He's, he's, he's doing all these different things. And, and his, his servants misinterpret this as, as, a, as a purely emotional grief. And then uh, after he's done, he's like, okay, that's it. The, the will of God is done. And uh, we'll have to talk about uh, him going to the temple in a minute. But they, they misunderstand it, and, and they think he's going to do something even worse. But no, God, David accepts the will of God. He said, I, I'm going to pray. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to implore God. But at the end of the day, his will will be done. And, and this and the will was that this child dies. Uh, after that, he gets up, he cleans up, and he goes to church. Uh, and, and I really appreciate that because I tell my people that are grieving, and it's hard. And by the way, David does grieve his other sons. He grieves after they die. In this case, he knew this one was going to die ahead of time. Um, that, you know, when you come to church, your, your loved one that's fallen asleep in Christ, uh, they are with Christ. 
And and so wherever the king is, that's Christ, there we also find his church. And at communion, in the service, with angels and archangels, and then we have that wonderful line, in all the company of heaven, those that are in the church triumphant, those that are in the church militant, that's us. We, we still struggle. We are together at that moment, and we can find comfort in God's house, not only in the communion and know that we are closest. We can visit the graves, and that's okay. I have a graveyard with my church. We are closest there in communion, but also we, we are in a place of life, uh, not a place of death. Uh, so th- this, I, I really love these chapters, uh, and especially this one. I don't love the sin in them, but I love what it tells us about how we react to sin in our life, how God reacts to it, and, and how that comfort has come through through Christ for us as well. Um, so we, the child's going to die, uh, and Christ has to die too. But that's not the end, how often, is it? How often do people turn away from the Lord when they experience tragic loss, and, and almost no one sinfully could have blamed David for rebelling against God when he knew for a fact that this was by the hand of God. And yet, of course, this astonishing and, and pious act that he does uh, brings him to the to the foot of the foot of the altar. We might say the foot of the cross, <laughs> but the cross hasn't come yeah. yet. But still, he comes. He comes to Yahweh. Right? You have you. Where else are we go? You have the word of life. Right? Where else could he go? Um, but how often today, when it doesn't even have to be as tragic as losing a child, but any sort of mild inconvenience that people blame on God might send them sinfully away from God. And here, mm-hmm. David, in contrast to Saul, as we've always been contrasting him to Saul since since David came on the scene, um, he he acknowledges his sins. He returns to the Lord. So David is a man after God's own heart in many ways, but it's not because he sinned less, but it's because when confronted with his sins, he repents. Correct. He's not Saul. Saul doesn't repent. Uh, and so he, he, in a sense— when, when God says that David is a man after his own heart, here, here David's heart is, is tender. David talks about the sin that you have no pity. Well, David does have pity. David does have sorrow. David does have repentance. And so God doesn't scrap everything. Uh, uh, he could have if he wanted to. But instead, you know, because of who David is, uh, in a minor way, uh, plays out in who Christ is for us in a major way. Uh, So Christ doesn't need to repent, and yet he teaches us to pray the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses, and he takes us all on for us. Uh, So David continues to be this picture, uh, this flawed picture, as as many of the Old Testament leaders are, of who Christ is going to be for us. Uh, so uh, and and it, it, it's fantastic. It's it's wonderful, and and there's more to this. So it's not just now the the death of the child. And by the way, the child dies before he's placed into the covenant. We he is in death on the seventh day, and where Christ is, Christ is in the grave on the seventh day. David says, "I can't bring him back, but I'm going to go to him." So yeah. he knows he's with Yahweh, he's with the Lord. Yeah, there's sometimes you'll read a commentary or read a comment that basically says um, that that means that David knows he's going to die. Uh, David knew that. Uh, that's silly. David knew uh, any military yeah. campaign, anything that, that God could 
God could, you know, that's the point where it's going to be done. He didn't have, I don't think David had some idea of some sort of, I'm God's representative, so God, I'll never see that. I don't believe that. And so, and then he has it more time. I think this is more the reflection that that this episode with the child is done. He's in God's arms, and and he he's not being brought back. I'm going to go to him. The cool thing is that when it comes to Christ, you know, he does come back. Uh, mm-hmm. And so there, there's there's something with with the Son of God. All of a sudden, it's different. In fact, if you remember earlier, it said a sword will never depart from David's house. Christ is part of David's house. There is warfare that occurs through the house of David and thus Israel all the way through Christ. Even Christ himself says, I bring a sword. There is this battle and warfare. But note when Christ dies, and then when he rises from the dead, there's a change because the word that he brings is peace. The sword has been laid down. Uh, And so the curse in a sense, on David's line, goes all the way through Christ. But because of Christ's death, and, and, and this is big, major death for the sins of everyone and for the sins of David's line, and that the, 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 the law that holds it over the head of David, the commandments, and thus over the head of Christ, um, ends in death. And the resurrected Christ then says, now how is my kingdom going to be? And I am on the throne of David forever. I am the son of David. And it's going to be one of peace and life, exactly what David was supposed to be. And as you so well pointed out, that God said, David, you have become a son of death. And Christ now goes into death to become a son of life. Mm. Uh, so this is it's fascinating stuff that tie, ties in here with what's going on with David and, and with this child that dies. We've been talking a lot about David, but Bathsheba lost her child too. And uh, verse 24, yes. verse 24 certainly kind of connects that a little way. But we also get introduced to somebody else. So let's read that, 24 and 25. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son. And he called his name Solomon. And Yahweh loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of Yahweh. Mm-hmm. So you said there would be a turn. We'd see, we'd see, uh, Nathan, I'm sorry, David's wife's name, Bathsheba, not just the wife of Uriah. And I guess that's right here, right? Yeah. And so I haven't checked this out. I suspected this as I read through this and, 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 and ran through my memory. Uh, but the, uh, the, the wife here, the child is loved and and Bathsheba is the wife now because this is a legitimate union. Uh, whereas the other child and the other one, this this was an adulterous union, and and that doesn't mean that that all I'm I'm the product of an adulterous union. I'll just now I sound the air to everybody, but to high school students and I was adopted and uh, out of wedlock. It's not it's now common nowadays, and I'm not cursed by God or anything. Uh, I, I, my confidence is in Christ, but but in the scriptures in the Old Testament. You know, when the wives are named, it is in these legitimate kind of unions. Uh, And so there is a redemptive value in this for Bathsheba. She is now his wife, and this child is beloved. And not only that, but David comforts her. Um, I mean, I, I can't look at it from Bathsheba's perspective, but you know, sleeping together, having another child, that, that's got to bring up some hard memories. 
um, yeah. and yet she is comforted. And, and she called his name Solomon, which means peace. Uh, it's, it's, it's related to that word. And so peace with David, peace in her heart now uh, through this child. And, and what's, what I mentioned about Christ dying and rising is we have this Christ as the line of David bearing the curse of humanity and the curse of this line. And then when we have him resurrected, now he's the son of peace. He's the, the king of peace. He is, he is Solomon. And Christ himself says that to those that reject him in Israel, he said, you know, there's going to be other people that rise up and would not recognize that there is a greater than Solomon here. So then even David and Bathsheba would have felt in this child. Um, and the child has another name, Jedidiah. Uh, uh, and so the Lord loves him. And what is Christ called by the father after he's baptized? This is my beloved son. Um, and yeah, so Jed- Solomon, Jedidiah, beloved of Yahweh, right? Yeah. And so Solomon, we'll call him Solomon because that's what we, mo- we know him as mostly. Solomon, too, as an infant, pictures what's going to happen through the line of David with Christ as well, except on a grander scheme uh, for us. Well, you know, folks, you might have forgotten, but this whole passage about Solomon's birth and David and Bathsheba and Uriah, all of it has been kind of a an interruption in the flow of the narrative. Brother, we're going to mm-hmm. get back just for a few verses here, but anything else before we kind of really change gears uh, and just let people know how the battle has been going on against the Ammonites. It's I think we forget, but yeah, th- this whole Bathsheba stuff, this was just sort of an, ins- not an insertion in terms of the text. Uh, someone inserted it later, but it's kind of an insertion in the action, right? We put it on pause while we learned about all of these things. Anything else you want people to know from that before we continue? I think just through this whole section, there, there's a lot of things to hang on to. One, about confession absolution, and remember that the Lord is ready to forgive your sins. Do not do not sit on them. You know, confess them and, and, and have them dealt with. Those that are dealing with children that died before baptism, you know, there's great confidence here that they're with the Lord. And why are they with the Lord? Look at David praying for them. And the Lutheran Church Fathers always would, would rely on that. You know, pray for your child. If your child is sick, you know, do, do these things, and, and the Lord will take care of it for you. Of course, we baptize our children, and we shouldn't hold it off because there's great promises there. But also have confidence in the Lord's mercy towards you. And then finally, see the big picture of Christ coming out of this, who is Christ for you, who is this new king of peace, this fulfillment uh, of the promises of the line of David. Well, let's go back to the Ammonite battle. We're, we're not going to have a lot of time to explain it all, but there's not much to explain. Um, things are just no. continuing to be fought out on the battlefield. Verse 26, Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then gather at the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount, And he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. 
Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Uh, that concludes our chapter for today. We just have a couple minutes left in the program, but still a few minutes for you to explain anything that's important for us to know about the battle there. Sure. So chapter 12 is kind of just a, a, a focus in on, on that last part of 11 where it says, you know, that the Lord is displeased and, and, and what happens in this public sin and, and how it's dealt with. Uh, and then we get back to the narrative, basically. And, and, and Job's a good guy. I mean, he's not a perfect guy, but he's a good guy. Normally, a, a general would be like, yeah, I'm going to take power and I'm going to become king because I'm taking over everything. But he waits off for the Lord's anointed to come. And uh, David brings the army and does what he was supposed to do back in chapter 11. Kings are supposed to go out to war. Uh, and so he goes out to war and, and takes the city uh, and the Ammonites. They, he takes this crown. And, and trivia-wise, it's, it's kind of fun. The crown is about, you know, 60, 70-pound crown. So it's only on his head for a little bit. It's just to show a transfer of power. For contrast, Henry VIII's crown was about seven pounds. And King Charles, the newly crowned, King of England, his his crown was like about 2.3 pounds, and even then, it wasn't worn very long because it's just to wear. Uh, and then the people are brought out, the walls are torn down, and they're 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 put to work. They're not put to torture or anything like that, but they're but they're put to work. Uh, and then then the the chapter concludes. So this this is kind of back to the ongoing narrative. But um, as we wrap up that narrative. Uh, in your next chapter, you're going to get into the consequences of David's sin still playing, his, playing out in his family. The sword will not depart. Amen, brother. In fact, the next chapter when we get together tomorrow is going to be a pretty rough one when it comes to depravity. Yeah, yeah. But before I introduce that, why don't I just thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Ryan Fairman. He's the pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Walsall, Wisconsin. Pastor, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. As the good pastor alluded to, tomorrow when we come back, we turn the page to chapter 13, which unveils the story of Amnon, David's firstborn, and his vile obsession with his half-sister Tamar. Aided by his crafty friend Jonadab, Amnon orchestrates a disturbing scheme that leads to Tamar's ruin and disgrace, and the aftermath stirs up a storm of anger and revenge within Absalom, Tamar's full brother, setting in motion a chain of events It'll shake David's kingdom to its core, folks. It's, it's, a, it's going to be an intense one, so come and join us tomorrow. But until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.